Well, please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61. I'm actually going to begin in Luke chapter 4. So you can also turn to Luke 4 and then keep a space there in 61. We'll be camping out for the majority of what we're doing. I'd like to uh, begin by reading from Luke chapter 4. And we're going to read verses 16 to 21. And what we're going to see here is Luke, in, or early in Jesus' ministry, we're going to see him in a synagogue in Capernaum. And, uh, or actually in Nazareth is, is where he's going to be. And it says this in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. Let me put that up for you to see. It says, he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. So he's having a bit of a homecoming early in his ministry. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let's pray. Father God, we pray. It's our earnest desire that you would take this reading of your scripture, that you will bless it to your good purposes. Help us understand things from Isaiah's perspective, but also more importantly, from your own, as you have, have referenced this in the Lord Jesus Christ and back to the book that we have spent so much time in studying. We thank you, Lord. We pray for clarity in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus quotes from Isaiah chapter 61, which is what we'll be talking more about today. And he claimed by reading this and saying, this has been fulfilled in your hearing today. He claimed to be the fulfillment of this passage in Isaiah. In Isaiah, we have someone speaking in the first person. And it's important, who is the identity of this person? Who is it that is speaking? And then when Jesus unrolls a scroll, he reads it. Interestingly, of course, it's written in the first person. And then he sits down and he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing today. And what we're seeing in Isaiah chapter 61 is really the continuation of several passages in Isaiah that we've already reviewed uh, called the Servant Songs. And we've identified this as the fifth Servant Song. And we're going to bring out just a few points of this today. So I'm going to then go to uh, Isaiah chapter 61 and read, the, read through this and point out some things. And the point of today's message is very simply this, that Jesus claimed to be this servant uh, Messiah from Isaiah chapter 61. So let me bring that up for you if, if I can. <laughs> Trying to. All right. Uh, so today's uh, claim is this, Jesus Christ claimed to be the liberating servant Messiah of Isaiah chapter 61. 
Uh, and of course, like it says there in Isaiah chapter 61, this is what we read there, uh, very simply what he said. And you'll see a couple differences between it because Jesus was likely reading from a scroll of the uh, Septuagint, but we're not sure about that. There's a couple little textual differences, but but the uh, but 90% of it is identically the same. Uh, the picture that I had on the, on the PowerPoint for you today was... Uh, of one of the caves in Qumran where they found the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, as they're known. And in among these was a full scroll of Isaiah. And when compared to uh, a scroll of the Masoretic text from a thousand years later, it was found to be in over 99% agreement. So it's astounding how the uh, scriptures were preserved. These from the Dead Sea that were found there, the scroll of Isaiah there, actually predated the incarnation of Jesus. So it became, so it was there and present prior to. That's important because he fulfilled a great deal of that as he is actually reading from a scroll of Isaiah and claiming to fulfill it. And these things were written about him beforehand. So these are important points to note. But back to the scriptures I want to show you this in Isaiah 61, where it says simply this, uh, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And you notice the Lord Jesus stopped right after that phrase right there, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so the question has to come, well, why did he stop there? Well, look what's next. Then the day of vengeance of our God. So he stopped mid-sentence at essentially what is a comma. They didn't have commas in Hebrew, but what would essentially be a comma in the flow of thought in the text, in the connection between these phrases. And that is really indicative of how the Old Testament often handles prophecy. We'll see things that are fulfilled thousands of years apart right next to each other in the same sentence. And so this helps us a lot in understanding maybe how to, uh, how to interpret prophecy, how to understand what it's saying, but also it helps us understand the mission of Jesus. He sat down after saying to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, says this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And why is that? Because the day of vengeance of our God is coming at his return. And so he read the part that he saw fit, and the rest is waiting fulfillment. Now, the rest of this passage, it doesn't mean the whole rest of the passage is waiting fulfillment. Many of these things are active and happening now. And I want to go through and read these to you and so that you can see the, the beauty of what he has set forward. What is the significance of the good news or the gospel that he brings? Uh, look what it says, the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. I've heard people say, and, and I've heard Christian people say, I don't like to read the book of Revelation because it's scary. But would it surprise you if I told you I believe the book of Revelation was written to comfort? Why would that be a comfort? Why would the day of vengeance of our God be a comfort to us? Because it means that the time that sin reigns on this planet is coming to an end. It means that the Lord is going to bring vengeance for all the sins that have been committed in the world, for all those who would not bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ willingly in this life. They will bow the knee to him ultimately 
and be removed from the world. And think about this. If God is going to have a, and reestablish an Eden and reestablish a place without sin, he's got to remove that sin somehow. He removes it in two ways. One is to nail it to the cross with the Lord Jesus Christ, and the other is to pour it out upon the sinner in eternal hell. And so he's got to separate the two. And that indeed is a comfort to all who mourn. We'll come back to this idea of those who mourn momentarily. It says, to grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations. And in their glory, you shall boast. So I want to focus on just a few of the phrases in the uh, beginning passage here that Jesus read. The first one I want to uh, focus on is this, that he brings good news to the poor. What we find here in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is the word that the New Testament has that is often translated for us, gospel. And it's a word that simply means good news. And here it has the verb form of it to bring the good news to the poor. And so Jesus, first off, has, has pointed this out as being fulfilled in him that he is bringing good news. And he's bringing it to the poor. And when we read that, we, don't, we want to understand he's not talking about the economically poor. I know some of you are disappointed at that, and I'm one of them. You know, okay, he's not talking about me as far as my economic situation. He's talking about those, as we see in parallel here in the next phrase, sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. So we have bringing good news to the poor in parallel to binding up the brokenhearted. And that tells us, okay, he's talking about poor of heart, or as he says in the Sermon on the Mount, poor in spirit. And you'll notice the next few verses speak more about mourning. Verse 3 talks about um, those who mourn to comfort all who mourn at the verse, end of verse 2. Verse 3 to grant to those who mourn in Zion, you know, gladness instead of mourning. Uh, well, where else do we hear about mourning? We hear about it at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus begins to teach in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And there he shows us this is a spiritual poverty we're talking about. These are those people who think, okay, they don't think a whole lot of themselves spiritually. They consider themselves a little spiritually bankrupt, lacking funds in that area. And he says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he said, blessed are those who mourn. So there's that word mourning again, for they shall be comforted and the word comfort right alongside it. So Jesus is perhaps drawing the attention of people back to this 
passage in Isaiah and others like it that speak of, you know, that the kingdom, the good news has come to those who are in this situation that they recognize the problem and they recognize it in themselves. And the promise is those who mourn will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. All four of these ideas he puts in parallel right up front at the beginning of his this passage, his great sermon that he has early in his ministry. And it's talking about those who mourn their spiritual state, those who lack a righteousness and are aware of it. They hunger and thirst for it. If your concern is your distance from God, if your concern is your separation from him, if your concern is your own inward ongoing struggle against sin, if you lament the conditions of the world and the brokenness around you, but also acknowledge your own part in it, then Jesus has good news for you. Here in the work of the servant Messiah, Jesus Christ. So he picked up the scroll, he read it, he proclaims that this good news begins with him. And it's not for some time future. You notice he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, the comfort to the mourning and the good news and binding up the brokenhearted and all that, he's speaking as a present reality. This is not something waiting until we die to go be with him or when he returns to bring his and fully manifest his kingdom upon the earth. The good news starts now. And that liberty that he pronounces to the captives begins now. And that's the next phrase that I want to look at here. This liberty to the captives. Liberty to the captives is in parallel, as we see in the scriptures here, to the opening of the prison to those who are bound. I'm getting ahead of myself there. The opening of the prison to those who are bound. And so this idea of liberty to the captives, well, this is like letting someone out of prison. And as I was reading and studying this week, something was pointed out to me in one of the commentaries I was reading that Israel didn't have prisons originally. You go back and you read the Levitical law and you read Exodus and, and Deuteronomy and all that, and they really didn't have a plan for prison. They had some crimes that were punishable as capital offenses. So there you've taken the problem completely out. You have a murderer. No, now you don't have a murderer. <laughs> you have an adulterer. Now you don't have an adulterer. So, so the Lord, you know, rather than just locking them up indefinitely, the idea is, you know, Israel's not going to be a place of prisons. We're going to have some capital crimes. We're also going to have some other crimes. You steal something, you're going to pay it back plus more. And these were the kind of situations they had. The closest thing they had to a prison were the cities of refuge where people who committed manslaughter would have to go and live in these particular cities. But they went ahead living their lives. They were just living it in a place they weren't living it before. And so this is an interesting point that was, that was made to me. And so when it comes 
and it says the opening of the prison to those who are bound, how would that make sense to an Israelite? Well, it would make sense to an Israelite because all the nations around them had prisons. And indeed, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, they themselves had prisons. And so God is real, and he talks to people in their situation, and he talks to these people who would be familiar with prisons, even though it really wasn't his will for the people of Israel to proclaim liberty to the captives. Now this would come across to those who were in exile as something profoundly important because they were, in essence, they were captives. They were taken off over a hundred years or so after Isaiah. Many of the people of Judah were taken over to Babylon. They were forced to stay there and live by Babylon and they were effectively captives. And so when they're looking at their scrolls of Isaiah over there and they're reading it on the, and, and that's when they kind of started to have synagogues because they had no temple anymore. They started to gather on the Sabbath days and read the scriptures and stuff. Even though they didn't have a temple, they would read this and they would say, liberty to the captives. Man, what that must be like. But there's something else that this proclaiming of liberty that we saw here in verse 1, proclaiming liberty to the captives, it is the same language as we have found in what we read earlier as we open today in Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 10. You shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty. So there's the same phrase. Throughout the land and all its inhabitants, it shall be a jubilee for you, when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. So in the Levitical laws, which we'd all like to skip over and not read, because <laughs> sometimes they're a little confusing to us, they're a little obscure, sometimes they're just plain boring. But I assure you, if you do effective study of them, they're not boring at all because you learn things like this. Like every seven years, they were supposed to have a sabbatical year. Okay, which as science catches up with the Bible, which it's always trying to do, but never really does, we realize that's good for the land anyway. They would have a sabbatical year in which they weren't supposed to plant crops or everything else or anything else, and they were supposed to return properties, forgive debts, things like that. The 50th year was special. It was seven sevens after seven of these sabbatical years. The next year, the 50th year, would be a year of what he called Jubilee. When they would all have to return property to the original tribes to whom it belonged. So if you were in a situation and you befell some difficulties or whatever, and you're, you had to sell the family farm, so to speak, and, and move into the city or something like that, then you would have that opportunity 50 years later so, so your poverty would not become generational. God did not want any of his people to be suffering under generational poverty. And we could take lessons from that today. And so this year of Jubilee, it would also be anyone that had to sell themselves into slavery or had been sold somehow into slavery, become servants of somebody, they had to be let go. As a matter of fact, the price for a servant was supposed to be prorated based upon how long it was to the next Jubilee because you had to let them go then. 
And if you were purchasing somebody's property because they were in a situation in which they had to sell property, you purchased it based on a price on how many years it was to Jubilee because you had to give it back then. So you were really, really renting the land from them. You were buying the crops of those years in between. Now, what does this have to do with Jesus in a synagogue in Nazareth reading from a scroll hundreds of years later? What does this especially have to do with somebody nearly 2,000 years later talking about it? It has to do with this. He was teaching us something with this jubilee. For Isaiah's audience, those people that were in exile, they would be reading this thing. They would find comfort and hope. They would be like, hey, one day we're going to go back. Just like God instructed us to give the land back, one day he's going to give the land back to us. And so this gave them great comfort. These words, simple couple of words, pointing them back to Jubilee was reminding them, hey, God, God told us to do Jubilee, and he never asked us to do something he wasn't willing to. And so he's probably going to do a jubilee. He's going to bring us back into that land. And someone else in the synagogue might say at that time, well, he promised he'd give us back the land in Jeremiah or in Deuteronomy or in other places where it's been mentioned. But now how does that connect to us? See, in these chapters, what we're seeing is a reestablishment of the kingdom. And starting in Isaiah chapter 60, really to the end of Isaiah, he is speaking of this age coming in, of a great age of peace, where all the nations, the Gentiles, are coming to Jerusalem willingly to know God. It's an age that's talked about as being as having justice and righteousness being done in the world, and God's people being cleansed and being obedient to God and being joyful in that obedience and in their relationship to God. And God's very presence being with them in Jerusalem. So what's that mean to us? Well, the Bible lays out the current situation of mankind like being in exile, in prison as it were. When Adam and Eve sinned, did you notice the first prison guards were established? He sent them out of the garden and he positioned a guard at the door, an angel with a flaming sword. Do you realize how sad that is? When you think about the quality of life in Eden and you think about the the actual presence of God and now you think about now there's this terrifying angel with a flaming sword guarding the way back. This is the prison. And we are in the prison and we are unable to free ourselves. But for those who mourn, for those who see their need and hunger and thirst for the righteousness, there's good news from the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that this prison is temporary. We are freed by Jesus Christ. And we're free from many important things. We're free from the sin debt that we owed to God. We are free from that heavy weight of wrath that abides upon us. We're liberated from it because the wrath is no longer upon us. It was upon Christ on the cross. 
Here's one maybe we haven't considered, and, and for good reason, because we're opposed to considering it by its very nature. We will be free from selfishness. I want you to try to think about what it would be like to be free from this impulse to make every moment in every situation about yourself. To be free from that disappointment and that discontent that comes to us inevitably because every moment's not about us. This is a liberation from that. It's a liberation to serve a liberation to put others first without that nagging constant habitual turning back to our own concerns and needs and serving god and liberated from the idea and the fear of failure in that service to god because it doesn't depend upon our Worldly success in the matter it depends upon the heart that it comes from, a heart cleansed by Christ. We'll be liberated from sinful desires, calming the internal war that ravaged our souls before our rebirth. It'll grant more and more victories the longer that we walk with him. It liberates us from the worldly pressure to conform to the world. Because all of a sudden, the, the, the reorientation of our senses, of our very nature, is reoriented toward God. So we are more, more, in, more serious, more concerned about Him than the world. Here's one that maybe we haven't considered enough. The liberty that Christ brings is to make us free from bitterness and grudges. That we are finally granted in the Lord Jesus Christ the ability to forgive because we have been forgiven. We discover in the gospel and in the good news that whatever anyone has done against us in our lives, no matter how horrible, no matter how monumental from a worldly perspective, is tiny compared to what we have all done against God. And then that debt that we have against God is forgiven. It is, it is expunged. <laughs> It is paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ and put upon him on the cross. And now we turn to those who owe us something minor in return. And what do we do? We forgive. If we are in Christ, you realize this is one of the only conditions ever put upon salvation in the Bible. Jesus says it in such a way as to suggest that if we do not forgive, we are ourselves likely never forgiven. It is a freedom from spiritual oppression. The forces of darkness were defeated by Jesus at the cross. They're still active in the world. 
But those that follow Jesus, those that are born again, are born into the kingdom, and therefore our citizenship is in heaven, and the rulers and authorities and powers and principalities of this world no longer have authority over us. In fact, we've been given authority to go out and preach this same good news. Do you get some scope, some idea of the the great proclamation of liberty that he's saying? See, this is ultimately an age of grace. And Jesus says it this way. He says that it is, a, uh, it is the year of the Lord's favor. That word favor there meaning grace is how you normally hear it translated. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor is what he said. And many people have taken that idea and, and called this the age of grace that we are in this age of grace. It came when Jesus came and it will remain until his return. But I assure you, grace has always been operative. For we would not have existed until, you know, we would have been eliminated before Jesus came if it weren't for tremendous grace and mercy on the part of God. But this is an age that can be particularly characterized by grace because of the proclamation of the gospel, the coming of the gospel. When Paul talks about the gospel, and he talks about uh, it most thoroughly in Romans, he begins at his gospel with the wrath of God. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And so there's that wrath and there's what we live under and there's the weight of the world that the testimony of God that something's not right. And this wrath of God is being revealed, he says it in a continuous sense, all the time. But as he discusses this, he comes to chapter 3 and he says this, but we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is the age of grace. This idea of redemption, a ransom paid, and there's so many illustrations of the gospel, and all the illustrations of the gospel, like redemption or ransom or salvation, all have us as helpless and in bondage, but by grace being freed. This is indeed the year of the Lord's favor. To understand that gift of grace, let's consider the blood of Jesus Christ that he applied to sanctify us for the presence of God because this is ultimately about that blood. You can see there in verse 25 where it goes on to say, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So this is the center of grace to the believer in Jesus Christ. Isaiah mentioned this. He mentioned it kind of in passing in Isaiah 52, the servant song we looked at last time where we talked about the servant's sacrifice. It says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. And by using this language, this idea of sprinkling, it draws us back to Leviticus again and back to the sacrifices that were made by the Israelites and the offerings presented by the Israelites in which some of the blood was applied to certain things to make them acceptable for the Lord's presence. It was applied to the priests. It was applied to the utensils. It was applied to all those things that would be brought into the holy place for the service of the Lord. 
In other words, things had to be made ritually clean in order to be in his presence. And this was all teaching us things about ritual cleansing. And we learn most about this in Hebrews, and it's specifically here in Hebrews 9. Look what it says. When Christ appeared as a high priest, so it's talking all about this high priest, the guy who, you know, offerings would be brought to him, some of the blood of the offering would be taken, it would be sprinkled into the holy place. He says this, um, uh, the high priest of good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So his own blood did in a heavenly and spiritual sense what the blood of goats and calves did in order to make the, the Levites and the priests suitable for service in order to make the worshipers suitable to come before God. He did that in a permanent kind of way, an eternal sacrifice as it is. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Do you see the holy place in heaven has been sanctified by Christ that we can occupy that space with God? Not only that, but the hearts of mankind, those who believe have been sanctified by the blood of Christ that the Holy Spirit of God himself can dwell in it. And all this is in view in the book of Isaiah. And Jesus, by picking up that scroll that day, he was claiming to be the fulfillment of those things. It's really something to think about. He claimed to be this liberating servant Messiah of Isaiah chapter 61. But there's one more we want to look at here. We want to take a look at this powerful truth here. The day of vengeance of our God. We go back there to Isaiah. We find some, like, like we pointed out earlier, this, this fascinating thing that he has actually brought us great grace, but will bring great vengeance. It proclaims a year of the Lord, Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. Folks, this age of grace that we now stand in has been the most magnificent age in the history of the world. A lot of people look back in the past and they fantasize about the simplicity of life, about you know what things must have been like without so many people on the planet and, and other things. But do you realize this is the age of grace, that the gospel has been put forward. People have been told, both Jews and Gentiles, how it is they can be saved. But this wonderful time is temporary. 
God must deliver his people ultimately from the very presence of sin and thus complete the union of heaven and earth. Remember how Jesus taught us to taught, he taught us to, 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 or taught us to pray. He taught us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And by teaching that, we were being trained that this situation on earth is temporary. Those who will not believe will face a day of vengeance of God. Isaiah's had a lot to say about this. He mentioned it all the way back in chapter 34. He says, the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Mentions it in chapter 35. Be strong, fear not. Now watch this. You ready for a paradox? He says, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. That believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, God's people, will ultimately be saved from the very presence of sin by this recompense that the Lord carries with him when he returns. When the book of Revelation wraps up in Revelation chapter 22, it says many interesting things, and John is told by the angel here, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Okay, this was getting close to 2,000 years ago, and he says the time is near. In other words, it's coming unexpectedly quick. He says, let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. In other words, let things continue as they're going. What he is saying is, it's pretty much going to look the same from the time he writes this in the late first century until the time Jesus returns. And that's how we can say he's coming quickly because indeed it's, you know, at a time we do not expect when things are just going along. There's no particular marker that says, ah, here it comes. Now, as people will know, but most of the world will not. And, he's, and the Lord Jesus says this, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's bringing his recompense with him. And this is a powerful and wonderful truth that we look at as we review these four things that he has spoken to us about. And as we review these things, here's what we want to consider here. Jesus Christ claimed to be this liberating servant Messiah of Isaiah 61. And he claimed to bring good news to the poor, to bring liberty to the captives, to bring the Lord's, the year of the Lord's favor. And even though he stopped reading at that point, he was claiming ownership of the passage and he was claiming to bring the day of vengeance of our God. So what do we take from this? Well, we take several things and, and hopefully we take them well. First of all is this. We wanna understand that we must repent and trust in Lord Jesus Christ. 
the one who claimed to be this liberating servant Messiah, and the one who proved it by the way that he lived, by the things that he taught, by his laying down of his life and his taking it up again. He proved to be this one without a doubt. And this day that he speaks of is going to come, he says, like a thief in the night. So do not delay to make certain of your standing with God. Don't delay. Make sure you know what's going to happen on that day. And then secondly, when you've made that sure, when you have confidence in that, you want to praise God for his grace in the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. Because you understand when he says this is the year of the Lord's favor, you can read that like, okay, the Lord's doing you a favor. It's grace. It's unmerited favor from the Lord Jesus Christ. From the Father who sent them the Lord Jesus who came and paid the price for our sins, the Holy Spirit that has applied it to our hearts, he deserves all praise and glory and honor for this wonderful work. So let's make it our point this week to greet every day with gratitude to the Lord Jesus for this year of favor. Let's pray. Father God, we praise your name because you've brought good news to the poor, that you've proclaimed liberty to the captives. And Lord, our prayer today is twofold. We first of all pray, Lord, that we would understand these things, that we would internalize them, that we would examine ourselves by them. And then we pray, Lord, that we would understand the value of what we often hold in ourselves in silence, that we will understand the value and the power of the gospel, and that, Lord, we will open our mouths and our hearts to those around us in great compassion and proclaim the truth, Lord, without a care for what they are concerned, but only a concern that you are glorified and that you are known. I pray then for boldness, and I pray that you would teach us by your truth to love your truth and to share it often with others. Lord, we pray this day in just great gratitude and thanksgiving for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, this one who came and offered himself and brought this good news and all of it based upon his humiliation and suffering. And Lord, I thank you. Thank you for what you have done. And Lord, we praise you and we praise you for being you the one who deserves all glory and honor. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.